You're listening to the Josh Trains Me podcast. Okay, well, this week it's just me, you and I. This topic I want to talk about is about failures. This isn't going to be a, a negative outlook on failures. This is actually going to be quite a positive and, in my experience, a realistic approach to how failures have personally affected me, what I've actually gone through and what I deem a failure. And my hope is that we can kind of work together for you to potentially learn from some of the experiences that I had. So you don't make these same choices. And I'm going to be talking about, um, I think at least five kind of categories. So I'm going to talk about some financial things. I'm going to try to find some examples of um, financial things that I did that were considered failures, some things around my health, some things around my happiness and routines, behaviors, things like that. So this is actually going to be a really personal one. And what we're going to do first is uh, we're going to do a couple minutes of meditation, okay, or mindfulness. So this is just meant to Fuck, man. For most of us, we are still like chronically stressed out and a lot of us don't manage stress well. So the goal with this is if you want to fast forward this episode by, let's say, three minutes, you're going to skip this. If that's if you just want to get to the juice here. And if you're feeling like, yeah, I could really use three minutes. What a great time to suggest three minutes of meditation, Josh. I'm going to do that with you. Then you can do that as part of it. So we're going to jump right in. Three minutes starts now, and I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me, and you can join me. So I'm going to do three minutes of slowly breathing. I'm going to close my eyes and breathe in slowly in and out through my nose. That's it.
It's about three minutes. Okay, here we go. Failures, struggles, things I haven't done well. Let's start with health. Let's start, let's jump in. A little bit of context. I've done lots of different things over the last oh, 20 years. I've been working on fitness for 20 years since I was 12 in different, different disciplines, different intensities, different frequencies, different, I put a lot of different intention at different, uh, different times as well. And at certain times I would put uh, a lot more, there was a lot more mental focus and real estate going into achieving certain certain physical uh, goals really that's a way to say it um and i think the first time uh i'm gonna call this a failure is um and we can a lot of us can relate to this is uh is around pain pain is pain's interesting i think we can learn a lot from it and the, the experiences i want to share are about uh, back injuries Okay. So back and hip injuries. So yeah, I'm calling these failures. It's not as if they're uh, directly linked to failing. What I more mean is these are experiences for me that I wasn't, maybe I didn't either have the resources I needed or the tools or the resourcefulness or, and, or I was partly ignorant and, or partly actually ignoring and yeah, it could be any combination of those things. So one of the first examples I want to give is I had this hip pain for like 10 years. So yeah, this is probably the, the biggest thing for me. So I, I remember I started getting this, this hip pain in my right hip and it felt like, um, it felt like a pinchy, achy, the sensations would really change and they definitely evolved and progressed and regressed over approximately the 10 year period. But I remember when I started getting it, I was doing landscaping and uh, so physically I was doing a lot of labor intensive work and I was also doing like going to the gym five nights a week too. Um, so it's, it's really hard to pinpoint as to maybe exactly how it happened. And I think that's a lot of the time we can look at injuries as sometimes it's real obvious. Like, you know, I got, you know, I got this like blunt force trauma and I have this injury and that's always kind of nice and neat to categorize things as that. But a lot of the time they can be like a repetition or like a strain in injury, or you can experience pain from those things. And that's what my experience is we're about is the uh, repetition. And this is part of the reason why I have such a strong importance and focus on mobility and, and doing certain warmups and doing cool downs and looking at the big picture. It's, you know, it's not so much like a lot of the time with clients, they'll sort of get into the weeds on what they're doing in a workout. And it's like, well, what are you spending? What position is your body in the other 95% of your life? And, you know, we got to take into account the 20, 30, 40, 50 years you have been alive before this workout as well. So it sort of minimizes 
the importance of the workout in a lot of ways and sort of zooms out to the, to the point where we realize that workouts are just part of what we do. And in terms of like a injury or pain management standpoint, it's just another place that we can be intentional. So it's great, but it's not everything. So I was getting this hip pain and I went to see multiple chiropractors and physiotherapists and massage therapists. And I took a course that I remember was really mind blowing. I took this course called, uh, functional muscular assessment and graduated exercise methods. It was taught by a chiropractor. And I remember that was like quite a while ago. That was probably like nine years ago. I took that course, but I remember this psoas fucking muscle. I remember realizing I'm like, holy shit, this psoas muscle is tight. And I stretched it. I found out how to stretch it. And I was like, oh, this is so, this is groundbreaking. And then I remember test, you get after courses, you get so excited to like test your clients on this stuff. And I realized, you know, most people are stiff in this. That was around the time I learned about, um, I forget the, the, uh, it's like upper, upper and lower cross syndrome. I, forget, I think it's called like yon, yon, yondas or something. Some, some person's name that founded this or sort of created this coin to this lower upper cross syndrome anyway. Um, I remember that worked really, really well for a little while. So I was stretching my hip flexors more, which now, I mean, nine years later, um, I've been talking about for a long time and so have a lot of people. So nine years later, it's completely irrelevant in a lot of ways. And then I remember my next most effective kind of strategy for that was, uh, seeing a chiropractor, Sue Gleason, I'm going to give you a shout out. She worked on active release on my adductors. Those are the muscles in the inside of our thighs. There's five adductor muscles, I think. And um, they're the opposing muscles to the abductors or the abductors, the muscles that pull your hip out or externally rotate your hip. Um, I remember working on that and it was like an instant relief. And I was so stoked because I was in like, chronic pain for years at that point and still doing a shitload of strength training and competing in strongman competitions and all this stuff. And a lot of it would be really, really aggravating to deal with because I was, my goal was to get stronger and it's really hard to get stronger when you're in pain. It's like a real, it's a real nagging experience that a lot of us can relate to. A lot of us are in pain physically, maybe even in other ways too, even emotional pain can come up physically, which is interesting. So the, the, the point of this is a lot of us can relate to how pain can affect our, even our ability to focus and our ability to progress in terms of uh, physical pursuits or any pursuit. It's really, it's, it, it takes a lot of energy. So any type of pain we're experiencing, it can be of huge benefit to try to address it because it's, it's hard to escape it. So the, the, the failure for me where this comes up is, um, not spending, not placing enough importance on addressing it. And at the time it was addressing, um, from a stance of learning about it more because I didn't know what was, what was imbalanced or what was wrong. It ended up being a combination of things, you know, stiff and weak. That's essentially what it is. My psoas was really weak. Dan Kalo pointed that out to me. He was like, man, for a guy that can deadlift what you can deadlift, your hip flexors are fucking super weak. And it was really good to hear that because I, uh, 
at the time I thought I was like super strong and like my having, having big glutes is actually like a, it's a totally a big thing when you get into powerlifting and strongman. having big legs is actually, it's actually great. It's sort of the opposite of how a lot of um, men approach the gym. They just want big upper bodies and big arms. And for me, it was like, I just want to get big legs, like fuck the arms. They're, they're cool too, but everyone wants big arms. So I started training that way and yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. But he, uh, he pointed that out to me, which was really, really groundbreaking for me too. So I started focusing on that a lot. And that is such an annoying muscle to train, to be honest, it's the most annoying muscle and seems to take a lot of stimulus to try to get that muscle strong, especially when you've been doing 10 years of work to, to train the opposing muscles. So my, where another failure comes in is, is not, um, you don't have to work with a coach essentially to, or explicitly to deal with this stuff, but learning about muscle balancing, especially when you're at the point of pain or discomfort, because your body's telling you something. And for you to ignore that is, is really silly. I think in a lot of ways, there's ways to uh, acknowledge that and then to address it or, you know, choose to ignore it or whatever. But I'm just letting you know, from my experience, like I'm 32 now and I've been lifting for 20 years in different regards and never, ever have I been ever to have, I been able to, you know, outrun or outlive an, an injury. It's never just disappeared. It's always been something that I've had to really focus on addressing. And usually it's been focusing on hiring someone else to help me. So the failure is not, not getting these things addressed quickly enough and not placing the sort of priority on addressing these before trying to get fucking really strong or jacked or whatever. I also herniated a couple discs. So in a diagnostic approach, I'm not sure if they were officially herniated. The really interesting thing about disc herniations is there's something like, I, I believe the studies are that most people, so more than 50% of people um, under diagnostic scanning show that they have disc herniations. And I forget the percentages, but there's a huge portion of people that have herniated discs that are asymptomatic for pain, meaning they don't have pain. So in a lot of cases, you could have a disc herniation and not be in any pain or even know that you have a disc herniation because you wouldn't necessarily know if you're not in pain. And then there's the folks like me that had these likely had disc herniations and was in intense pain. And this is a, I'm going to call this a failure because getting injured is, you know, it's technically in my opinion, it's if you're, if you're reaching or training until injury, and this is this was not my approach, but if you're letting injury be the, um, be kind of like the perimeter of your, of your boundaries, like that's too far. I think that that's really ignorant and not, not self-aware. I'm not saying, you know, getting injured means you're dumb or anything like that. It's not always like negligence that, that causes injury. In fact, I think most of the time it's probably not, but I do think there's like space to be self-aware and to, yeah, to just pay attention more to your body. And if you're working with a, a coach or a trainer, report that stuff. Right. And hopefully they can help you if they're, decent coach or you're in a decent program, then that will be something that you guys can communicate and talk about, collaborate on, collaborate and listen. Um, so the disc herniations is 100% something that 
when you're symptomatic, you can't fucking do anything. I remember getting into a car and driving out east with uh, my partner at the time, and I had herniated my disc the day before. And for you guys listening, if you've had a disc herniation, sitting down is like one of the most uncomfortable positions you can be in. And uh, that was like a, I think it was a two day drive. And I remember throwing like a fucking huge Gatorade bottle in my lumbar spine and my low back. So it would put me in this like mega arch position, which is, you know, not the position you want to be in when you're driving, but to help relieve pain, I had to be in this heavily arched position, which is if you've had a disc herniation, a lot of the times, depending on the, the position of the herniation, they'll give you, you'll be prescribed like sloppy pushups or, um, Mackenzie pushups or whatever the case. And that puts you in that passive arch position. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was brutal. So that injury was actually, was certainly not intentional. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was, I was deadlifting sub-maximal weight. And I remember watching a video and my technique was actually really good. So from a technical standpoint, I don't know that you would have been able to look at it and be like, this is obvious. You're going to get hurt here. Um, I think it, that actually was down to this kind of approach of, or this concept of like, you know, like the repetition, um, meaning like the more you train with dysfunction, um, what's the term there's a, I think it was, I'm going to look this up. I think, I think it was Jim Wendler. He's a, a really well-known power lifter. No, maybe it wasn't Jim Wendler. Who was it from West side barbell? I believe it was those fellas there. Um, training dysfunction. There's an expression that's really good. I just forget. I think it was Louis Simmons that says this. He's from Westside Barbell. Um, Anyway, I don't remember what this is, but uh, it's a really good expression. It's too bad. I can't remember. It's something like training with dysfunction leads to um, it doesn't build capacity. It builds dysfunction. I'm, I'm butchering it. Anyway, that's, I think that's where my injuries came and the loading wasn't accurate. I wasn't giving my body enough time to recover and rest, even though I felt like I was doing the movements really well. So it's kind of a, it's a tough thing. It's, it's a little bit more complicated when you get into training for some, for some strength and you're not necessarily in a position where you're super body aware. And when you're also in a position where you're, you know, really mentally tough and you'll push through a lot of things, it's like, well, your body won't always push through. So it's like risk versus reward in a lot of these ways. So I think that that was some of my failure is not being self-aware enough and prioritizing, like, you know, getting the reps done versus getting the reps done. If your body feels really good, it's one thing to train your mind and it's one thing to train your, your body. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Some of my other struggles were, around endurance training. So one of the things I had, uh, this is pain again. I was having this pain and it comes up very, very intermittently now, less so. But I, at one point when I was starting to do a lot of run training, so I started out by training for a half marathon, which is a pretty common distance for people that are into running, right? 21 kilometers. Sounds extreme if you've never run very far, but there's people that have run a lot more, but to me at the time it was pretty extreme. 
and it was 21 kilometers of road running. That's where, uh, that's where I started the run sort of train. I like to go big. So I hadn't done a race before that other than like cross country and I don't know, like grade six or something. So a long time before that. And through that training, so that was like several months. And then the several months after I was still run training and I would get this burn. If you're watching this video, you'll be able to see, but I would get this burning sensation from like my upper pec into my, I think it was my levator scapula, which is this muscle and kind of the side to the back of your trap up to your neck. And, um, kind of every breath, when I got to a certain intensity, it would cause this burning sensation. It was really, really distracting from being mindful about running and being in a state of, you know, presence or flow or whatever you want to call it, getting the runners high because I would feel this burning sensation and it was, yeah, really distracting and, and quite uncomfortable. And I remember I would always like crank, like, this is not what to do is my body. I, I would be trying like clearly my body and I, mentally, I knew that something was not in alignment. Something was not optimal. And I would like try to crank on this shoulder to try to like, almost like to yank it into an improved position, but that it never helped. And this went on for quite a while. It wasn't a hundred percent of the time, but it was quite a, quite a while. And one of the things I remember, which was really eye opening. again, this is kind of the same experience. I would go to someone else that knew more than me. I would learn. And then, you know, there was a particular nugget of information or a protocol or a tactic that I would use. And I'd be like, Holy shit, that's helping this. So this was around the time where I started focusing on nasal breathing or nose breathing. And one of the people that started that was a coach I had in Connecticut. So this was as we were training for John Witzing and I were training for this 24 hour, 24 hours of isolation. It was called the locked and loaded challenge, which was a 24 hour sensory deprived run in a shipping container. And if you don't know about this, this is a really fucking cool race that we did. Um, long story short, it kind of blew up into this pretty huge event. It got hosted. The There's a company called Spartan who does, it was like the leading company on obstacle course races. It's kind of like Tough Mudder times 10. Like they're just way larger. I think Tough Mudder may be folded by this point. But anyway, this event, it was the first of first of its kind event. I don't think it's been replicated since. This was three years ago now. And it got hosted at the Spartan World Championship. So there was people from like really good endurance athletes from all over the world that compete in this. And we happened to have this, you know, separate kind of side event that was hosted there. So needless to say, to be able to run for 24 hours, which wasn't the outcome, but to be able to run for 24 hours, there had to be a lot of training in mind. So we trained with a coach named Paul Cochera, who works for Trueform or did work for Trueform. Uh, I don't totally know if he's still working for them. But he is really into... And gratefully, he's really into biomechanics and running specifically. And with that comes how you breathe when you run. And the simple fact that I started nasal breathing, because of how nasal breathing affects our system and what it, how our body integrates with nose breathing versus mouth breathing, that was the difference for me. So 
what I noticed was looking back when I was getting this burning sensation in my pec and my neck, it was because I was taking shallow breaths. And a lot of the time I was breathing through my mouth, um, potentially probably more specifically on the inhale. So that's generally where our breath is going to be a little bit shallower. If we inhale during our, our mouth, inhale through our mouth, pardon me, versus our nose. So I started breathing through my nose and I didn't necessarily start training with him for this reason, but I noticed that the byproduct of improving my breathing mechanics helped this. And this is what this kind of alludes to. So when you are a chronic mouth breather, or if you were doing what I was doing, which was mouth breathing a lot during longer runs, it equates to a lot of mouth breathing, right? And what that subsequently does is includes or recruits all these secondary components or secondary muscles of re your respiratory system, which are muscles in your upper chest, uh, your intercostal muscles, but like the higher intercostal muscles, muscles in your upper trap and neck. And these muscles are secondary muscles for respiration, meaning they're not the primary, most efficient, effective muscles for breathing. So my thought is that I was recruiting these muscles more than they were either accustomed to or designed to, and they were signaling back with this burning sensation. So when I started breathing through my nose, it was allowing me a number of things, but here are the relevant parts. It was allowing me to breathe deeper. Okay. So I was breathing and I was utilizing my diaphragm muscle more. I was breathing into the lower parts of my lungs more, more easily. And I was recruiting less of these, of these secondary respiratory muscles. Okay. So I started to work the muscles that are designed. Our bodies are designed in a specific way. There's no real like hack for it. Nasal breathing is more efficient in long-term endurance training than breathing through your mouth. And there's differences physiologically, mechanically, nervous system wise to all, all this. I go over this in some of the courses I have and it made a huge impact. I was able to run for a couple hours sometimes without any of that burning sensation. And that hip pain was coming back before this training. And again, the hip pain that I'd already talked about and through proper running mechanics that like cleared right up. And I want to mention this because there's a lot of running is really popular and running is also a really accessible way for people to get exercise. Now, I'll just save you some time. If you're new to running and you're not sure about running technique, heel striking is not the way to do it. So if you're, and by running, I mean, jogging, jogging to sprinting anywhere in there to do, um, to heel strike, meaning when you your front leg goes out to catch the ground and your heel hits first, it puts a tremendous amount of force and weight into unoptimal parts of your body. So it kind of overloads certain parts of your body. And I'll let you know that I ended up with a lot more pain in my body because I had poor running mechanics. I remember my friend Dan, I posted this picture of me running up a hill and he like privately dm'd me because he didn't want to embarrass me and he was like in very nice in a very nice way he said your mechanics suck man like look in the picture you just posted and i was like oh great i appreciate you. let me know that because i didn't know that at the time and uh yeah i was heel striking like crazy my body was you know this is where my discipline and my mental game was really strong but my body was like 
man, you suck at this, like get better at this. We're going to get better at running. If you run better, you don't always have to improve your mental discipline or your mental toughness. So that's kind of another fault in and of itself. You got to be able to train your body and learn to do things as efficient as you'd like to do them, or your body may eventually start to give you warning signs that things are not optimal. It could be in pain. It could be injury. It could be uh, other things as well, but your body is so, so intuitive. Your body is, your body is the vessel. So this is, this is what there is to be intuitive about in a lot of ways is yourself, right? Your own body, the way you feel. So that was kind of another sort of failure for me. Um, I think it's important just to sort of touch on the fact that I think failures are super important. And I don't look at failures as, as negative, uh, negative experiences at all. In fact, I look at them more as like data points. So if you were to look at a broken line graph, a failure is just another sort of part of the process. So providing that you, you know, you learn from them when they're, whether they're lightly evident, or in my case, they're like, you know, you've, we've reminded you of this pain in your neck, you know, 600 times. Um, when are you going to do something about that? They are just more data points. So it's part of the process. We don't all have to fail though. We don't all have to fail at everything we do. It's not actually required. Sometimes things can go a little more smoothly. So a podcast like this, if you're involved in any of the stuff I'm doing, you can learn from it and not fail the same way. And you can progress a little bit quicker and maybe with a little bit more ease or grace because my technique wasn't very good on anything I ever did. Uh, my technique's pretty good on most things now, but I mean, I've been doing it for some of these things I've been literally doing for 20 years and you'd hope someone that's been doing something for that long is at least pretty good, at least pretty good. If you're not pretty good, then I don't know. You shouldn't be teaching people probably at that point. So those are some of the sort of uh, physical or health failures. I'm going to go into uh, to a diet kind of failure. It's, it feels a little bit weird calling it a failure. It's just like things I've done that weren't optimal. And maybe you can pick up on this and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to stop doing that too. That's brutal. Um, I used to consume a lot of dairy. All right. And I used to have terrible gas at lots of different times. And it was really embarrassing. And, and it was to the point where I thought it was normal, but it wasn't normal at the same time. It's kind of like it was common, but it's not optimal. And yeah, what I realized is like some of the foods I was eating was just really terrible quality. And the unfortunate part is this terrible quality food is the food that's accessible to most people. So, you know, we put a lot of crap in our bodies. I've done that a lot too. I eat while well, I eat extremely clean compared to most people now, but at some points I was just trying to get more calories in or, you know, was on a bit of a budget for food. And yeah, like there, my body was just not handling it. So if you're really gassy from food or from certain things, not even, it doesn't have to be ex, um, explicitly from food, but if your body is doing something that's not optimal, you can recognize that as, as what it is. This is not optimal. So something is going on. And again, your body, well, I'll use this term exactly. Your body keeps the score. So 
That's um oh man, I keep forgetting his name. I did a review, a book review on this guy too. Um uh I forget his first name. Vanderkessel, I think, is the last name or the middle last name. Anyway, you're not going to outrun it. Like, address it, okay? This is why I talk about self-awareness being, like, literally this sort of starting point. You need to understand kind of where you're starting from and just where you're at. It's like the check-in. It's really important. So, yeah, I was like super gassy and I was realizing I was embarrassed about it. And then I realized I'm like, well, I can control this. So when I started to change my diet and I've done that lots of different times over the years, I've never, I've probably changed the way I've eaten probably 15 times, right? Like the sort of your palate changes, the types of food you're eating change, the meal frequency changes, your caloric intake changes, the way you cook food changes, the way you interact with food changes your, you know, uh, the quality of your food changes, the digestibility, bioavailability changes. There's so many changes. So there have been a lot of changes with food over the last quite a while. I'm going to give you guys a really simple, we'll call it a struggle I had with, with gaining weight. And this is the most common, we'll call it a fault that we can experience if you're in the boat of trying to gain weight. The thing about gaining weight is you have to eat enough consistently enough to gain weight. Training is hundred percent a part of it, but I'm talking about food. There were lots of times where I was trying to gain weight and I wasn't really tracking what I was eating. And therefore there were times where I wasn't consistent enough with eating enough and I, I wasn't gaining weight. There were times where I wasn't always trying to gain weight. I, I was, I haven't been on a get big, you know, 10 year goal, but just like actually tracking it, having, having the goal and then actually tracking it is, is something at, at different times that I didn't do. And it was basically what I'll, what I'll sort of like summarize that as is just not having a clear enough goal and just sort of going for it. But it's like, just don't have a goal at all. If you're, if you like be in it or don't be in it. And that was kind of where I was wishy-washy about it. And I wasn't fully committed to it. And I think it's, it can be really important in life to commit to things. And I think that they have greater implications for, you know, how we operate in different ways in life. And I think that that's important. It's my first time making my own bone broth, which is just about time. And it's good. There's a, this is basically soup though. There's tons of carrots and onions in it. Here's a, we'll call this a struggle with, with wealth. We'll go over some finance stuff. I'm not giving you advice here. I'm just telling you things that I probably should have done sooner. And this isn't beating myself up. This is not a negative self-talk or anything like that. This is saying if someone's in my boat, Maybe you can relate, or if someone is younger than me and you have similar goals, then it might make sense. This might be the indicator to move ahead with that. Uh, realistically, it's not buying real estate at a young enough age. I bought my first house when I was 24, which is awesome, but hindsight is 2020. And anyone I ever talk to that's 
had the focus or a focus on becoming wealthier or buying more real estate. Um, pretty much most, I'm going to say most people I've talked to wish they had a went bigger sooner. It's not everyone, but I've talked to a lot of people and heard from mentors and that, that say I should have, I shouldn't have started so small, right? Knowing what they know now, they should have went bigger quicker. And, uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now is it would have been sweet to get something three years before, and we can all relate to house prices. I don't think it matters where you are. House prices are pretty crazy everywhere. And if you were in a position ish to buy a house two years ago, it's a lot harder to get that house now if you're in the same position. So that would have been really helpful. Um, the other thing that for me, again, I'm not giving financial advice. That's not my role. Although I do read up on real estate quite a bit and I am involved in real estate investing. It's, um, I mean, I did do this, but there were times where I slowed down on it and it's uh, not pulling, not pulling the equity out of my houses quick enough to buy more real estate. Here's a struggle I have. This is something I haven't really shared with a lot of people. <clears throat> and this hasn't necessarily been resolved, but at one point I was struggling with, you know, it's, it's a bit of a dichotomy. It's like, you know, I'm a white man and you know where I'm going with this when I say that, I think, but you know, I'm a white man that loves the game monopoly and it's, it feels good owning real estate and it can set you up for, you know, added income and more safety and security with finances and, yeah. And most people's mind, it's a, in most people's minds, it's a good move. And I think it's a good move regardless of what other people think at this point. Um, where was I going with that? Yeah. So, you know, it's this good move. It's a good investment, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a part of me that's like, fuck man, we're buying, I'm buying more stolen land. And yeah, it's a, it's tough. It's like a part of me is like, this is not, not the right strategy to go with in order to, you know, feel in terms of a, an, a personal ethics standpoint, it's not the right route to go. I don't, I wouldn't say it's, you know, disruptive enough in terms of ethics that it's keep me up at night, or it's like really challenging my ability to think about it or make decisions, but it does come up. And I, and I've never heard that come up from any any real estate investor I've ever talked to, I've never heard of them like, you know, giving, um, talking about uh, like land rights or paying, I forget what you call it, like certain times during ceremonies or uh, events still acknowledge, uh, land acknowledgement. I've never heard anyone do or perform a land acknowledgement. Perform might be the wrong choice of word, but I've never heard that. And I think that that, I think that that's important. I think uh, like, you know, cats out of the bag, white men stole native land. And uh, I didn't study any of this. I've just heard some of it and I'm definitely ignorant and naive to it. But I think part of the step towards this is like naming things that you think are wrong. And so this is straight up a struggle. It's like, I'm buying more. I'm a white guy buying more real estate. I'm buying more land. I'm saying it's my own when, uh, when it's like, you know, it's been stolen. I don't know. I'd love to talk to someone that's really educated on this 
to see uh, their perspective. So I think I'll probably try to invite someone on this podcast that has studied that. And I actually have quite a few friends that have. So if you're listening to this and you want to be on here and talk about that topic, I'm super game to, to learn more about that and to just have a conversation about it. I'm going to talk about some routine struggles that I've had. So if you're a client of mine, we talk about routines all the time. It's like routine is what makes us right. It's routine is what encompasses all the mundane and exciting tasks. It's pretty much like the combination of the two everyday life shit. And then like major stuff. It's like, that's sort of what routine is to me. I have been extremely fascinated with routine and, you know, how to optimize and how to be as high performing and efficient as possible. So I've gone through a lot of listening to people that had good routines or unique routines, trying them out, writing them down, trying different ones. And yeah, I think it's a, I think it's definitely a point of a point of conversation, a topic like where I think it's very, very commonly, we all have, we all have a lot of the same issues where, you know, not all of us, but a lot of us want to have more energy. We want to have, you know, more fulfillment in life and we want to waste less time. That's my thought. I hear those things a lot and that's, that's what I work on in a lot of ways. So there's sort of two sides of the coin. And this is another course I do called live better. And it's a course I have available on my website. So I'm going to be dropping that link in here because it's, uh, I have course content that's available as a subscription service. So it's meant for people that want content from, uh, from a coach without hiring them as a one-on-one coach. So it's a much more, uh, like a sort of a smaller scale that you get access to a bunch of content. And I upload courses every month based on uh, producing them and creating them. So I'll put that link below if that's something you're interested in. That's going to be a, a pretty small fee in the grand scheme. And so I talk about this, this in my live better course, and it's about um, like, and maybe this is just me, but the obsession over morning routines, I've, I've probably had 500 conversations about probably more than that, to be honest, I've had hundreds of conversations about morning routines. And I think the interesting thing about it is our morning, how we feel, how we perceive things is a direct correlation about how we do and what we do for our night routine. So someone who really simplified this approach for me, and it, I, it may not have been his intention, but Alex Hormozzi, who's a, I've mentioned him in other podcasts, he teaches other coaches how to build like six figure coaching businesses. I've never been involved or invested in any of his programs, but he's pretty cool. Anyway, he talked about his morning routine being like the most plain thing ever. And it was like, wow, that's weird. You know, you don't have any like cool, weird niche hacks or fucking biohacks, or you don't like go upside down in the bathtub drinking coffee or something. And he's like, no. And he focuses on going to bed at the same time every night. And I was like, really interesting that we don't have more conversation around optimizing bedtime or night routines. There's certainly, I consume a lot of information about this. 
things about light bulbs, things about certain glasses to help mitigate um, help mitigate melatonin inhibition and like certain stimulants during certain times of the day to help mitigate certain things and uh, conversation and mindfulness and, and routines and screen watching and pillows and grounding mats and food before bed and supplements before bed and the amount of water and when to exercise. There's been a lot of conversation and a lot of research into this kind of stuff too. You can call it biohacking if you want, I just call it like normal routine. And I just think that's, I think there's a, there's a importance created on this morning routine. I think if we just shift it and start to get better at what we do at night, our morning routine is going to get far more, far better just from the changes we do at night. And here's the, here's the change I've made some mornings. So I still fall into the sort of trend of waking up early to try to get more done. Okay. Sometimes that's necessary, but I experimented with this the other day and I messaged my friend RJ about this and I woke up a little bit later. I think I woke up at um, like six 30. So for some of you guys, that's not early. And for some of you guys, that's really early. So it doesn't really matter. This isn't about comparing or, you know, competing and who's getting more or less sleep. It's complete bullshit to try to get less sleep to get up earlier so you can get more done. And here's, here's the, the sort of correlation for me to get less sleep meant getting up earlier to get up earlier. I had, you know, technically, technically more of my time in the day because I was sleeping less because of sleeping less, I wasn't as productive. I wasn't thinking as clearly. My desire to train was lower. So I had to rely more on discipline and I didn't feel as happy. I didn't feel like I had access to fun or joy or just stupid moments during the day. And there was a couple, there was a couple nights where I said, I'm going to go to bed earlier and I was able to fall asleep earlier. I paid attention to my body. Some, sometimes I do that. Not honestly, not all the time. Sometimes I stay up later for other reasons. Um, usually it's like watching UFC, but I do, uh, I do have these new blue light blocking glasses. That seems to make a big difference. And I'll put a link to those too, because those were really inexpensive. Um, your opinion is probably going to be that they look terrible because they look like orange safety glasses, but apparently I can pull them off. So that's, that's fine. The, I woke up feeling much happier. So that was my first, my first reaction to my, my sensations in my body was that I felt happier. And part of that was because I got more sleep. I was more rested. Okay. And I, did my, did the luminosity app, right. Which is like a kind of a gamified brain development app that I got from Mike Knapp, who I'm going to have on the podcast too. He's a trainer from the Durham area and my scores were much higher. So I thought about how, like, I thought about, I'm like, what are the fucking priorities here? Like, am I living, and this is something I struggle with, but it's something I want to bring up because I think it's something other people, well, I know it's something that folks have a hard time, like that fucking daily grind and hustle and work more. And it's like, 
eh, I don't know about that. But I can say if your goal is like more time to create more tasks, then like, yeah, sleep less. If your goal, like my goal is not necessarily, my main goal is not to, it's not to do more things. That's not, that's not my goal. Actually, my goal is to do some bigger things. And a huge part of my goal is to enjoy my life and to be more present and to, to feel fulfilled. And a lot of that means enjoying the mundane stuff because, you know, your, our days are not full of like, uh, catching up with old friends all the time and doing these fun outdoorsy shit, this fun outdoorsy shit, or, you know, uh, going to certain events. Like there's really not a lot of that at all anymore, especially for us in Canada right now. And sleep is such a fucking big part of that. So this is a reminder to me. And I want to, again, I'm sharing this because I think other people can probably relate to it. Not everyone. I know if you're parents, like that can be difficult. So again, I'm not being forceful with this or critical. I'm more saying this based on myself. It's if you can establish like what your, what your goal is, even if it's not a real clear goal, like, you know, a finance goal or a fitness goal, it's like, what do I want to get out of life? And if it's to be fulfilled and feel happy, like I think it is for most people, at least part of it, sleep can make that way more likely. So depriving yourself of sleep is not always the, the path to get there. I don't think. So that was a, that was sort of an anecdotal experience for me was, you know, trying to get less sleep. And I still fall into that. I'm like, if I wake up half hour earlier, I'll be able to do this activity and this. And sometimes I still do that, but I'm still trying to prioritize at least seven and a half hours of sleep a night. And to be truthful, I, I think I need more than that. I think like eight and a half or nine is, is optimal. I don't usually get optimal. Most people don't fucking get optimal, um, but you can't outwork bad, a bad sleep routine. Okay. So I think you're just, I think it's really, really silly and ignorant and not self-aware to try to outwork a poor sleep routine. And I think that's what a lot of us do. Um, may, may, maybe you haven't made that direct connection, but a lot of us are doing that. We're trying to wake up earlier. And there was this, um, there was a powerlifter named Stan Efferding that posted this thing a while ago. And he's like, if you're waking up and I'll explain this a little bit, cause it's not as literal. It's, it's not a, across the board example, but he's like, if you're waking up at 4am to do fasted cardio, you're, you're stepping over a loony to get a penny or something like that. So essentially like if you're, so the example is if you're cutting sleep out so that you can get your exercise in a little bit, um, you're doing a way less efficient thing because the value and the, and how important sleep is and what that does to your, everything in your life. So something to keep in mind, guys, sleep is fucking important. I know you've heard that your entire life, but there's very good reason for that. Um, yeah, the, I've had a lot of struggles with, with routine stuff, which is part of the reason I talk about them so much. Another sort of struggle I've had with routines and this becomes like a struggle to me is, is very, very important because with a struggle, 
if you can identify that you're struggling in your life, then it means that there's, um, I think there's openness to change. I think you're recognizing that you want something to change. So for me, the example was, uh, this was like a couple months ago and I was kind of going down this rabbit hole of my morning routine being like 12 things. And these were all really cool things to me. It was like, you know, cold water, breath work, meditation, exercise, reading, learning. Um, like it was, it was the most intentional morning I think I could have created. Like there was all sorts of aspects. And then I realized I'm like, well, technically this isn't really a morning routine if it takes me three hours or four hours to do. So there's a little bit of ignorance there. I'm like, that's not, that's not a morning routine. So don't call it that. That's just, you know, half of your day you're setting out. But on the flip side, there's, there's also like, what are the things that I, what are the things I really need to do versus what are the things I kind of like to do? And I think it, for me, it was kind of prioritizing those. What are the, what are the few things I can do that are going to give me the most sort of payoff? And that could, the payoff could mean like, I feel the most fulfilled. I feel like I accomplished the most, whatever it, it, it's got to re relate back to your goal. So my goal was to work towards my physical goals, which is right now gaining a little bit of size while improving my um, capacity on the echo bike, which is the only cardio I do right now. And I'm, I'm actively working on both of those things, which is, uh, which is possible. So if I work on that, if I do something that moves me, you know, one pawn towards that every day, and it might not necessarily mean like getting on the bike or doing a strength workout. It's, it's really just like movement every morning. It could mean going outside for a walk, like anything truly to get my body moving is really helpful. And it kind of changes, but again, uh, cold, cold showers have popped back in again. So I'm doing those every morning again, and that's cool. And then just writing, writing some things down. That's been my main thing too. And truthfully, that feels pretty good. And the Lumosity app, I do that most days. So for anyone that's trying to get to a goal, you don't have to be committed 100% of the time or you don't have to execute 100% of the time. I don't believe because I've, I've done it and lots of my clients have done it in different ways. It's, it's all about the kind of longer term consistency, right? Because if you're six days out of seven days for a month, yeah, you might see some change. But if you're four days a week for six months, that's a lot more time you spent on that. And it's a lot more progression or, you know, the pawns are moving forward more towards that goal. So for me, it's kind of taking a step back and, and realizing, kind of taking my own advice and so the struggle is take your own advice. Sometimes you don't have to do the same thing every morning for it to be a routine. Okay. That's just a 24 hour clock that we tend to use. Um, figure out how often you need to do them so that you feel good about it. 
All right. And, and it doesn't, I don't know, it might have to be every day, but it might not have to be the same thing every day. For instance, like with training, it doesn't have, to, I don't have to lift weights every single day for me to feel like I'm getting bigger or to feel like I'm progressing. In fact, like physiologically, it can take a lot less than that. Um, so it's kind of like, what am I, what am I feeding? What am I serving by doing that? And that's, that can just be an important thing. It's not, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that bringing that question up to, to make you more um, like cynical or necessarily critical, but it's just like, you know, sometimes it's just about being curious. Like, hmm, why, why am I doing this? Why is this important to me? Why do I feel like I need to do this seven days a week is five. Would that work? Or what is it about that? So it's kind of, again, it's kind of comes back to self-awareness, which I think is, uh, yeah, is part of it. Um, I'm going to talk about failure or uh, struggle. This isn't so much a failure, but for those of you who have been listening to this podcast, you're probably noticing certain themes come up at this point. I think this is episode 11 or 12. I think it's episode 11. And the themes are grit, vulnerability, and intention. So I think the intention is pretty clear, right? And the intention of me being intentional is pretty clear too especially when we're talking about routines and why we're doing them and being self-aware, that's all very intentional sort of deliberate work. The vulnerability piece, this is really interesting. So I think, and this is not necessarily a new idea, but probably I could say accurately, most people, regardless of sex or gender, um, have a hard time with vulnerability. Okay. I'm going to keep it a little bit general, but I think that that's fair to say. And I'd say with men more so, more men have a harder time being vulnerable. And there's a lot of conditioning and a lot of sort of uh, relearning or unlearning that has to be done around that. And this is where this struggle came up because I grew up like a lot of other men and without very good boundaries and without very good role models in, in some situations and without being educated on some situations. So sex, relationships, money, um, kind of the standard stuff that we're not taught in school. Uh, you know, I grew up without knowing those things too. And there's a lot of issues because of those. Not exclusively because of those. You know, we all have our own work and are all we all have our own responsibility. But um, and in the same time, we are a product of our of our environment. So if we're, if we're not getting, you know, the positive resource that uh, we need or learning things a certain way, then there's, that's certainly part of it. So I kind of went, I kind of overcorrected at a time in my life where I went from being, you know, not very vulnerable, unknowingly, just common, normal to being almost like it's sort of a tough term, but like overly vulnerable or um, open sort of to a fault without there being many boundaries around that. And where I've sort of come to now is to realize that vulnerability is important. And I think as a man speaking to, you know, people that are listening, it's not just men, but specifically men, Focusing on being more vulnerable is going to be really, really helpful. But then also learning boundaries around vulnerability for me 
is a struggle that I had because I sort of went from like nothing to like full and then like to, to sort of correcting again. And it's been difficult. And part of what's really helped that is having a, a men's group to be a part of and relate to more men and to hear other men's struggles, whether they're dads or they're single or they're in a relationship or whatever the circumstance that's been really, really helpful. So I think there is some advice with this. And that is if you can get involved in a men's group, it's pretty inexpensive for what it is. At least the group that I'm a part of is not very expensive. And I will all offer this. If there's someone that would like, like truly wants to be a part of a men's group, but can't afford it, reach out to me and we can work something out. And just because I know how helpful it's been for me and how, how, how good it is to feel like you're part of a community. And what's really fascinating about that is that's, that's a safe space. Like that's in, in a men's group, it's known to be a safe space where men can share and, you know, there's certain structure around it, but it's, it's known to be a safe space where it's, it's confidential, right? You don't go around talking to your other friends or family about all the issues that these other men are having. And you know that, you know, what you say in there, you're not going to be, you're not going to be judged for, right? Providing you have a good facilitator, at least in the group I am, I'm in, it's great. And I've heard of lots of really good experiences. Ty Wagmar is another guy in Peterborough that does men's group work and Kevin Oros in Texas. He's another guy that does a lot of men's coaching, uh, masculine energy work. I can recommend both of those guys. And I think that that can be really, really, really important. So part of what I'll say is a struggle. Uh, this is one of the last things I'm going to mention, I think is not having a sense of community. And I think if you're listening to this and, and that's really resonating with you, then you already know that, that you're probably you know, light on that or missing that element in your life and community can come up in a lot of ways. And again, I talk about this in one of my online courses that you can have access to, but it's called community. Okay. It's not a fancy word, but I talk about community as being not necessarily a group. It could be one other person. Um, I kind of compare it with, or tag community with having, you know, a mentor or having a coach or, and, or, and the nice thing about having community in this sense is you get the opportunity to be vulnerable in lots of different ways. You get to be humble in lots of ways and sometimes be humbled. And I think the first step and the most accessible step to seeking community in this way is maybe a, a fairly, maybe a somewhat irrelevant example, but also maybe a, a not very common example would be um, start reading more books. So yeah, like you could argue, how are you getting community from books? And it's not, it's not so much about the community aspect you would get, but what you are doing when you're reading a book is reading someone else's ideas. So there's certainly uh, a connection you can make with another a character or a person or a group of people, whatever the situation is in the book. And it's a great, it's a great source of humility because you're 
taking the time and you have the willingness to read someone else's ideas, which I think is a really good form of humility. And it's also extremely accessible because there's millions of books available. So community is really important. I've clearly recommended the men's group. I'm going to say for women too, I've never been a part of a women's group, obviously, but I know a lot of women that have, and I think it's really important to do some of the work. And this is definitely a buzzword, like the work self-work, but do it, do it in a, in a space that's, or in a group that's it's consensual and there's boundaries around it so that you're like, one of the issues is I've had with, with a partner in my past is we were just open the whole time to each other. And it was just constantly vulnerable and constantly um, critical. And it was just like, kind of felt like you were in, I don't know how to say this. It's just that that's what I mean. It just wasn't really a good relationship because it was like constant criticism and you were being critical and I was being critical, this kind of situation. And there's, I think there's gotta be a time and a place and there's gotta be a balance. Like if that's your goal is to be critical and fucking really do the work. I think that's appropriate, but it, I don't know the, maybe the boundary is that it can't be that way all the time. And for me, it's like, it can't be that way all the time. So for instance, this men's group is once a week for three hours and it's great. And it's once a week. Okay. So it's not all the time and it's not my, most of my week and it's not most of my time. I think I said that twice. It's not most of my time though. I'm telling you. So I hope you guys took something away from this. Um, I wanted to do this. I'm working on uh, booking some, I have some other guests booking, but I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of space with guests and to talk about this stuff because it allows me to be vulnerable. Number one, it allows me to be intentional. And for me talking about these ideas and talking about kind of my, some of my struggles that I've faced or experienced with like, you know, routines, we talked about the morning routine, the nighttime routine, the fucking training, the ignoring pain, the relationships, some of the finance stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, it gives me an opportunity to, part of it is selfish. It gives me an opportunity to discuss these ideas so I can hear them back too. But ultimately it's to be able to relate to people and, I'm someone that doesn't have an issue being vulnerable now. So I'm, I'm like a totally open book for, for if people want to discuss issues, I, uh, I'm one of the, the expression is, you know, I'll be the first person to do that, but no, I won't be the first person. But what I'm saying is I am totally okay being vulnerable and expressing if I don't know something or expressing if I am ignorant to something that I know of. And if it's something that I need to work on, like that's something that I, I think that that's definitely a skill of mine is being vulnerable and being okay. And I'll be honest, like a lot of this work, whether it's being vulnerable or doing things that are gritty, it, it all comes down to self-belief for me. Believe that, you know, the outcome is, is going to be better than not sharing it and believing that you can do it. So if it's, if you want to classify something as grit, it's like something that's fucking hard that you think is badass. That's what I think is grit. So how are you going to be more, how are you going to pursue more grit? It's like, you got to have belief that you can do it. And then you actually have to do it. You got to get some ribbons, man. You have, you actually have to do some stuff. You have to participate in it. 
can't just talk about it. That's why I'm talking about this stuff. It's that I'm doing it. I'm not just talking about ideas. Sometimes it's just talking about ideas, but a lot of the time it's, it's from experience and we can all have these experiences. It doesn't make me any better than anyone else. It's just different experiences. Um, vulnerability is a huge part of it. So I kind of like encourage you guys to be more vulnerable, be more open about your feelings and that. And if, if nothing else, it will feel better in, in, inside of your body to be vulnerable, to express things. I think again, not giving psychiatric advice or therapy advice, but from my experience, it's almost always been better. And it's almost always felt good even for the people or the person that I'm discussing these things with. So anyway, a bit of a side launch from uh, what we've been talking about with these podcasts before, but uh, I appreciate you guys listening to these and please share this. Uh, I'm on YouTube, right? This video will be posted on YouTube. My podcasts are on Spotify and Apple podcasts. So subscribe. If you are liking the majority of the content, I'll be completely honest. There's, I think there's like, I actually don't subscribe to any podcast because I don't like everything that they, that they talk about. So there's no, no harm. I'm not upset if you don't subscribe to this and I'm not upset if you don't listen to all of them. Like I don't, I don't really care. So, but if you do great, fucking let's keep it going. Talk soon.